work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription hello everybody my name is mick sullivan and i want to welcome you to the past and the curious This is my podcast and it is so much fun to create. We have a lot of families out there and a lot of kids who love it and a lot of adults too. And we're delighted to be able to share it with you. So thank you for joining us. This is episode 27 and it's been one we've been looking forward to for quite some time. Every December we put together a special holiday episode and in 2018 it is no different. This episode features a few historically important and interesting games and toys. It also features the voice and talent of my old friend Bridget Kalin, and I'm very excited about that too. We're going to begin the show with uh, a skit that's supposed to feel like an award show from 1999. I want you to keep something in mind. The awards were real. The clip you're going to hear, obviously not so real. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the first annual Toy Hall of Fame Induction Ceremonies. The toys, the toys, all the girls and boys, cause tonight's about the toys. And welcome back, everybody. If you're just joining us, well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Gamers and players, doll makers, and pursuers of trivia, this is the moment we have been waiting for, for what seems like all of our lives. And it's been a thrill so far. But wait, there's more. That's right, Mick. And as we stand here in 1999 on the cusp of a new millennia, hoping that all of our computers will still work next year, we cast our eyes not forward, but backwards to some of the greatest gifts mankind has ever created. And when you say gifts, you really mean gifts, don't you, Bridget? Sure do, Mick. We're talking about toys, girls and boys. Yes, I'd like to welcome you once again to the first induction ceremony to the official Toy Hall of Fame. And everyone's here. Just look around. There's the little guy from Monopoly. There's the Pop-O-Matic Bubble from Sorry. Mr. and Mrs. Slinky, I see you in the back. Oh, hey, Mr. Potato Head. How you doing? Unfortunately, we don't have the rights to your voice. Who will take home the big award? Who will be enshrined forever in immortality? Who will have to try again next year? So far today, we've given Lifetime Achievement Awards to such luminaries as Crayola Crowns, Etch-A-Sketch, The Frisbee, The Hula Hoop, Play-Doh, and Roller Skates. Which brings us to our next honoree. Drumroll, please. Our next inductee into the inaugural class of the Toy Hall of Fame is Lincoln Logs. 
Sometimes parents and kids don't exactly get along, and the Wright family was no different. Frank Lloyd Wright is known today as one of, if not the most important, of American architects. His unique vision and approach influenced the design of buildings all over the globe. Perhaps you've seen some of the buildings he's created. One of the most famous ones is in Pennsylvania. And like many other fancy houses, it has a name, Falling Water. The name is appropriate because it's built on top of a waterfall. Sounds crazy, but it's totally true. Look out the window or look down the stairs and what do you see? Water. Falling down a waterfall. It's pretty awesome. It should be noted that when Frank was born, his middle name wasn't Lloyd. It was Lincoln. He changed it later in honor of his mother's family name. It also should be noted that it wasn't really a surprise that little Frankie would become an architect. When he was a child, his mother gave him a set of blocks that he absolutely loved. It was a great gift, and one that a child born before him would probably have never had. A child born in 1867 could expect a life that wasn't very similar to the ones we live today. And one big difference was that the idea of play in education was pretty radical. But a new movement that began in Germany was slowly changing the world. It was called kindergarten. One of the main captains of kindergarten, a man named Friedrich Froebel, had a guiding principle. Play is the work of children. He believed that through playing and experimenting, kids learn about the world. It might not look like much to an adult, but important things were going on in a child's brain. Of course, we know this today, but at the time, it was pretty revolutionary, and we all have a lot to thank Mr. Froebel for. Frank Lincoln Wright, soon to be Frank Lloyd Wright, was really proud of his set of blocks and other gifts, as Froebel called the toys in the set. The maple blocks came in a variety of shapes, which nested perfectly in an open storage box. And for many hours, Frank would sit at a table and use the pieces to build, always aware of how the pieces worked together. Many years later, he would talk about how those shapes were always in his hands, not physically, but in his memory. They provided him the very first opportunity to build structures that were strong, but he also took great pains to make sure his creations looked as nice as possible. As an adult, he created some truly incredible buildings and homes which are also very beautiful. There's a saying in architecture, form follows function, and it is often attributed to Frank Lloyd Wright's mentor, Lewis Sullivan. In short, it means that what a building looks like should be a result of what it is designed to do. Baseball stadiums all look like baseball stadiums because of what the buildings need to do. Office buildings look like office buildings because of what they need to do. And you wouldn't try to stage a play or put on a concert in one of those downtown office buildings. You'd use a building designed for that purpose, a theater. For the most part, Frank was guided by the form-follows-function approach, though he thought some people misinterpreted its real meaning. But that's a whole other story. In 1917, he began work on a building whose form would certainly follow its function, and he took his son and apprentice John along for the job. 
They were hired to design a hotel in Tokyo, Japan, and there were some requirements. It needed to be very distinct, look great, and appeal to guests. It needed to offer comfortable spaces, and most importantly, it needed to withstand the force of an earthquake. It was well known that this particular area was susceptible to earthquakes, so the father and son had their work cut out for them. To solve the earthquake problem, Frank wanted a very strong foundation, the part of the building that sits underground and supports everything else. He decided to use giant wooden logs, and at the end of each, like a log cabin, notches were cut so the giant timbers could lock into each other. It was flexible and stable. Sadly, around this time, the father and son had a fight, which sent John packing back home to America while his father finished the job without him. It also left the young man without any money. But an idea had occurred to him while looking at the Japanese hotel. When John was a child, he and his siblings had many toys like their father's childhood blocks. Their mother was the kindergarten teacher in the neighborhood, and many happy hours were spent building, testing, and imagining, just as his father had done. And though John Lloyd Wright could think big like his dad, he was actually thinking very small right now. Modeled after the interlocking beams of the Japanese hotel, John created miniature blocks of several sizes, all with interlocking notches that allowed a child to fix them together without nails or glue. Like the earthquake-resistant Imperial Hotel, a structure made of these could withstand the earthquake of a small child. And he called them Lincoln Logs. Now, we can't say for sure why he called them Lincoln Logs. Did he choose the name because of his dad's original middle name? Or did he name them after the president? If it's the president explanation, as you'll see, that guy had a pretty profound impact on games and toys. Since the original version of the set came with plans to build Abraham Lincoln's Kentucky Cabin, well, that's a pretty safe bet, but we can't be certain. Before long, John Lloyd Wright patented Lincoln Logs under his own toy brand, Red Square Toys, and they were an instant success. Quickly, other construction-based toys found their way onto shelves and into homes, but many of these, like the Erector Set, used metal. And when World War II caused a shortage of metals, the companies manufacturing those had to halt production. Not Lincoln Logs. They just kept cranking out the wooden pieces. Though the popularity peaked in the 1950s, Wright's toys are still in production and have sold well over 100 million sets worldwide. Huh. I could really go for a game now. It's quiz time. Ah, it's quiz perfect. time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. Yes, indeed. It is quiz time again. And this is a game and a toy quiz, so buckle in. I bet you're going to get some of these correct. Keep track. What famous toy was created by mistake by an inventor who was trying to create a new kind of synthetic rubber for the U.S. government? It was Silly Putty, and while James Wright's invention wasn't what the government was looking for, it turned out to be a perfect toy for kids. 
The stretchy, bouncy, newsprint-lifting rubber material was unique and in high demand in its first year on the market. Silly Putty experts estimate that over 300 million eggs of Silly Putty have been sold to date. Question number two. What colorful construction-based toy was invented by a carpenter and his son in Denmark in the 1930s? The Christensen family is responsible for giving us Legos. The name was a combination of the Danish words leg and got, which means play well. The original locking blocks were pretty different and began to resemble the toys we know today by the 1950s. And the third and final toy question for the day is, what toy from the 1950s required children to supply their own vegetable in order to play? Did you get it? Did you guess? It's Mr. Potato Head! The set originally included the face parts and clothing decorations, which were mounted on pins. So there was no body and kids would have to get their own potato or other vegetable and smash those pins in to that vegetable. It was a great idea. It gave kids the power to design a toy themselves. At one point, the toys were packaged inside of a cereal box, actually, until a company named Hasbro designed a potato body and made the familiar potato person set. How'd you do? Three for three? That's what I thought. People have been pretty obsessed with teaching other people morality and civility for a long time. In other words, how to behave. When George Washington was a youngster, he had a copy of a book called The Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. And he wasn't alone. It seems like a lot of kids of his time had to do the same school assignment, copying by hand and sometimes even memorizing this detailed list of 110 rules of etiquette. The hope was that it would guide an individual in all of his or her decisions and interactions. There's some really important information in the book. For example, rule number 38. In visiting the sick, do not presently play the physician if you be not knowing therein. Translation, if someone is sick and you don't know much about the sickness because you're not a doctor, well, maybe you should keep your mouth shut a good rule for anything really but what about this rule number 50 be not hasty to believe flying reports to the disparagement of any translation this means don't be too quick to believe bad rumors about people other ones you should probably know number two when in company do not put your hands on any part of the body that is not usually discovered translation don't scratch your butt or pick your toe jam in public. Uh, that's gross. That goes without saying. But then there's number 13, and it's classic. Kill no vermin as fleas, lice, ticks, etc. in the sight of others. And if you see any filth or thick spittle, put your foot dexterously upon it. And if it be upon the cloth of your companions, put it off privately. And if it be upon your own clothes, return thanks to him who put it off. Translation, um, don't pick live bugs off of yourself in the presence of others. And if someone wipes spit off of your jacket, be sure to thank them, I guess. Yeah, 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 that's it. 
Anyway, this book's origins trace to a French publication around 1600, and the version quoted here was from 1640, so it was already super old and boring when George Washington learned it in 1744. So you can understand why 100 years later, people were looking for new ways to teach people how to behave. Milton Bradley was no different. Originally, he worked as a draftsman for a company that designed train cars in Massachusetts. And when somebody showed him a color lithograph reproduction of a fancy train car that he happened to have drawn, he was struck by the beauty of the printing and how clearly it could reproduce images. This was hard to do efficiently and cheaply at the time, so he bought a lithograph machine of his own and started printing things. At first, business was very good for him because he had the only machine for miles around. So if anyone needed color lithograph images, well, he was their guy. But he had goals beyond that. The lithograph printing machine and his drawing ability gave him a great way to teach people the pitfalls of an immoral life. A game! Sounds fun, right? It was called the Checkered Game of Life, and it lives on today as the game known as Life. In the board game you might be familiar with today, players spin a wheel and fill up a station wagon with little plastic family members and do super exciting things like buy stock certificates and car insurance. It's every child's dream, right? The original version was much the same, minus the station wagon, and rather than spin the wheel, players twirled a teetum, which was his name for a six-sided top, and moved the piece across the board. The goal was to reach happy old age, but a person's chances could be interrupted by crime, gambling, or the idleness of sitting around and doing nothing. So sad. He printed some copies of his new game and took them to New York, where they sold decently. Pretty soon, though, he shifted his focus. It was around this time that a tall, thin, clean-shaven man from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln was running for president. Abe wasn't exactly a favorite to win the election of 1860, but he found a lot of supporters in a country filled with turmoil and disagreement. There's an old business saying, Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Basically, it's a piece of advice meaning that you shouldn't focus all of your efforts and resources in one area, as that one area could tank and lose everything. It's best to spread your resources around. Well, despite that adage, Milton Bradley put all of his eggs in the Abraham Lincoln basket. With his lithograph machine, he printed thousands of copies of an image of Abraham Lincoln, which he sold to thousands of people with, well, what would you call it? Abraham affection? Lincoln love? A.B. rabies? Whatever you want to call it, Milton Bradley made money like mad. Before long, his lithographs were hanging on walls all over the country, each one very much the same. Abe stared out with slightly messy hair, a stoic wrinkled face, and heavy eyes. And there was not even a whisker upon his chin. Then everything changed. Dear sir, my father has just come home from the fair and brought home your picture. I am a little girl, only 11 years old, but want you should be the President of the United States very much. So I hope you won't think me very bold to write such a great man as you are. I have yet got four brothers, and part of them will vote for you anyway. And if you let your whiskers grow, 
I will try to get the rest of them to vote for you, too. You would look a great deal better, for your face is so thin. <gasps> anyway, my father is going to vote for you, and if I was a man, I would vote for you, too. This was a letter sent to Abe by a young girl from Westfield, New York. Her name was Grace Bedell, and she believed the president should have a beard. Time out, time out. We need to take a step away from the story, point something out. As this letter clearly states, women could not vote at this time, which is absolutely absurd to think about. Grace was 11, so boy or girl, you can't vote when you're 11. Sorry, kids. Wait till you're 18. But her mother was an adult, and her mother deserved to vote, as did every other woman. And it was a long, hard road for women to get this right to vote. So we're clear. You understand that? Okay. Time in. It turns out Abe didn't disagree with her hairy idea. When he wrote her back, he was still a little unsure about growing a beard because he thought people might find it silly since, you know, he'd never worn one before. Which is funny because that's how we think of Abraham Lincoln now. But sure enough, he grew that beard. And just a few months later, when his train stopped in Grace's hometown, he asked to meet her. Sitting beside her on the train platform, he said, Grace, look at my whiskers. I grew them just for you. That's exactly how I said it too. Now you might be able to make the case that he had her to thank for helping have him elected. You could also make a case that she killed Milton Bradley's Lincoln lithograph business. As soon as Abe was rocking that beard, no one wanted Milton Bradley's baby face picture. They wanted Abe with his new whiskers on the wall, and so Milton was left with a warehouse full of lonely Lincoln lithographs. There was nothing to do with the thousands of pictures. Too bad Sharpie markers weren't a thing, because he could have just drawn a thousand or so beards. But there were no Sharpie markers in 1861, so he had no other choice but to turn back to his checkered game of life idea. He printed up some more and took them to New York, and they sold. Then a few more orders came in, and then much to his surprise, it caught like wildfire. The game became the hottest selling item that winter. It was like Tickle Me Elmo or Hatchimals or Fidget Spinners, except the game of life has remained popular for over a century now. Talk to me about Fidget Spinners in 100 years. Milton Bradley's big moment came 99 years after his death in 2010. Alongside playing cards, the game of life was inducted into the Toy Hall of Fame. Checkers, the bicycle, the slinky, silly putty were all chosen in the years before, but the game earned its rightful place beside those classics. And the Milton Bradley name continues to be one of the most recognizable names in all of games. The company that bears his name has also given us Battleship, Connect 4, Twister, and a whole lot more. But that's not all you can thank Milton Bradley for. After the Civil War, Milton Bradley became one of America's leading proponents, pushing for kindergarten. Before this time, there was no kindergarten, no free play in school, nothing like kindergarten at all. But Milton knew that each child had a natural creativity and curiosity that needed to be nurtured. And he did a lot to help this. He even manufactured brightly colored papers and devised a specific set of colors for paints that is still the standard in children's art supplies today. 
He was so excited about this that he gave them away regularly for free to kindergarten teachers. In fact, he gave so many away that his company started losing money. And eventually they told him that he either had to choose between the company or giving things away free to children. He chose to give things away. I guess there were no hard feelings for Grace Bedell. This music you are hearing is performed by my friends Steve Cooley and Bridget Kalin. Bridget, who you heard reading the first story of this episode, is actually playing the musical saw, which is like a regular woodcutting saw, except it's bent and played with a violin bow. And as for Steve, well, he's just the best banjo player that I know. They have an entire collection of holiday duets available for free at BridgetKalen.com, and I think you should go check it out because there's some really fun stuff there. We'll link to it on the web and on social media. I really appreciate you listening to this episode, episode 27. I wish everybody happy holidays, and we'll talk to you very, very soon. Be sure to leave us a review on social media. Give us a follow wherever you follow things, and... Stay tuned, because we've got a great 2019 planned. I'm Mick Sullivan, and this has been The Past and the Curious. 